0: Now, one of the most fascinating things you can do on Google, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things you can do on Google, but I only just discovered this, so I think it's pretty fascinating, is to go to a thing called Google Ngram. Anyone heard of Google Ngram? Ah, you have now. Yeah, because you were here this morning, Simon. That doesn't count. Uh, Google Ngram will give you hours of fun. I'll tell you what it does. It lets you search for words and phrases in pretty much every text ever printed that Google has got copy. So that's a lot of texts, right? Going back to 1800. So you can, and it will spit out a chart for you of when those phrases were most used in history. So it spits out this chart and you can see whether the word thou was used in 1800 as opposed to 1930 or the word zoo or the word whatever it might be. So anyway, I put in the phrase the wrong side of history and something very fascinating came out. You'll discover if you do this, almost nobody said this phrase before the 1950s and then pretty much no one much said this all the way up to the 1990s and then the graph goes like this straight up and we find that there are a lot of uses of the phrase the wrong side of history especially about the time president obama was elected in 2008 pretty much then everyone was on the wrong side of history or on the right side of history if you put the right side of history in you get the same result Obama, President Obama himself, used the phrase 15 times in his speeches, saying things like, my fellow Americans, that's the best impression I can do, I am confident we will succeed in this mission because we are on the right side of history. The terrorists, by contrast, are on the wrong side of history. So, like, you can imagine in his head, he's got some massive rolling boulder, this thing called history and it kind of rolls down the hill and it comes in the same direction and will crush everything in its wake and if you're on the wrong side of it it just crushes you so you better get with this rolling boulder called history and just go with it you've got no choice to go with it the idea that human history is progressing from stage to stage the right side is obviously one that's very attractive I I find it very attractive myself it's a great story it tells us that History is this great epic tale, a heroic and triumphant epic of progress from darkness to enlightenment. Things were bad back then, things are great right now. And that's true in so many ways. I would rather live today than a century ago. Although the beads have come back into fashion, so maybe it wouldn't look that different. But a century ago, uh, you know, infant mortality was pretty bad. Actually, a century ago, they were living in the midst of the worst war the world had ever seen. But you go to Waverley Cemetery, walk around there for a little bit, and you'll see how much infant mortality there was back then, right? We just don't, at least in the urban West, in the urban parts of our country, we don't think of infant mortality as being that significant a problem. It is sadly true for indigenous communities in the rest of Australia, we should keep an eye on that, but so much has changed for the better. There's a a person I know of whose uh, younger brother died because of an infected pimple in the 1930s. That that was it. He got an infection from that, and because there was no antibiotics, no penicillin, he just died as a young man. That was it. We just don't expect to die in that way anymore. And so we think that history is going like this, things are getting better, and that things are going to continue. There's a book I read uh, just last year by a man called Yuval Noah Harari called Homo Deus. Homo Deus means man, or, or humanity, God. So God like humanity, it says, and this guy reckons that the way progress is going in about 100 years' time, we will have done with death, uh, the technology will have been developed, and we will pretty much master everything. There will be no suffering, pain, You have to read it to believe it. It's an extraordinary, optimistic idea that this guy has, homo deus. And if that's the case, and history seems to be moving in a particular direction, who are you and I to stand in its way? Are you just blocking progress? That's inevitable. And that's often said about the followers of Jesus Christ, isn't it? We meet in old-fashioned buildings. Who meets in a building like this? We have dated morals. Out-of-date out of, out of date morality. We have a worldview that seems embarrassing. We believe in miracles. The church seems to represent a dangerously outmoded vision for human life that would be quaint if it weren't so dangerous. It's unscientific, people say, irrational, and even indecent. If there's history, and there's a right side to history, it's hard to see that Jesus Christ and his followers have much of a future in it. So, hadn't we better just get out of the way? Or, if we must keep going, just kind of quietly accept that history is going that way and um, just enjoy our irrelevance. The book of Revelation we're opening tonight addresses exactly this situation, when Jesus and his followers seem to be on the wrong side of history. But before we get there, it's worth pausing for a minute and asking whether this great story of human progress, which I find so compelling, I mean, I hope you do in many ways too, is it really as convincing as all that. Aren't there some cracks in it? There's, there's quite a lot of reason to doubt its absolute vision of progress, isn't there? I mean, you can think of some ways in which progress hasn't been universally good, and in, in history hasn't just advanced from page to page, Is it really true, that story, for the millions of people who today live in grinding poverty in their own filth at risk of disease across the world? Can we really be that optimistic when, you know, a trillion ton hunk of ice cracked off Antarctica just the other day? Can we really look forward to world peace all the while North Korea's nuclear program is developing and President Trump is sending tweets their way, as if that's frightening. You know, are we really optimistic about the future of the world if that's the case? Haven't we seen the the development of the internet? And coupled with the sort of 1960s revolution in sexual ethics, liberal sexual ethics, that came about in those days, haven't we seen that lead to an epidemic of porn addiction with the devastating effects already visible in the community, among us. There's more than a few cracks in this story of progress. and We should keep them in mind as we open this book, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Now, as I said before, a lot of you probably haven't read the book of Revelation. I know a lot of Christians say to me, it's a book I've just never opened. It's sort of really difficult to do your quiet times in the morning out of the book of Revelation. It just doesn't kind of tell you how to live that day. It seems it doesn't give you much advice about being, uh, about praying a lot or about casting your anxieties on Jesus. It doesn't tell you clearly what to do. And a lot of people who are extremely wacky in their beliefs seem to use the book of Revelation and come up with extremely weird things from it. So it's a little bit frightening to us because we feel we're going to go in there and get lost in the mess. And look, to be honest, it is a strange book. But what it isn't, it isn't a timetable for the end of the world. Some people have said, "Oh, this is. If we look closely in this book, we can calculate when the end of the world is coming. We'll be able to see King John it in there somewhere, and uh, there will be bears in there, that'll represent Russia and all this sort of stuff. And one thing we know from Jesus himself is that we don't know the end of the world, and if someone when that, when that is, and if someone comes and tells you, then they're lying. So if they think they've calculated from this book, well, that's not what this book is trying to say. It is a book, though, that's written in a kind of code. It has a sophisticated system of symbols and numbers and colours, and we saw all of those in play in the chapter we had read, and they do all have hidden meanings. It was written like this because in the days that it was written, its reader and its author were under pressure, and they were in a lot of trouble, as we heard in verse 9, and they were trying to communicate with one another without tipping off the authorities. So it was meant to be a bit of a mystery so that no one could see what it was actually saying, or at least the wrong people couldn't see. Which means for us, it's a little bit baffling to read unless you have the key to the code. You might remember the story of the the Enigma machine in the Second World War. What they came up with was a a machine that would generate absolutely baffling codes. And no one, no one could dismantle these codes. Uh, The people on the German side just couldn't dismantle, kind of translate these codes at all. What you needed to to, to dismantle the code, to uh, unpick the code, was another Enigma machine. In the case of the book of Revelation, we have the machine. We have that, the good news is. And it's not like you're only given the key when you graduate from theology and you become a minister. Just to to let you know that. We know what the key is because there are lots of other books that were actually written in this kind of code and the book of Revelation uses the conventions of these books so we can check and qualify and cross-reference with those. And we know because there's lots of symbols that the book of Revelation uses that are found in the Old Testament. One of the things that this book wants to do is to show us how important the Old Testament is. It's just soaked in references to the Old Testament which we can all read. So for example, the number seven in the book of Revelation, you see lots of we saw in today's passage. The number seven means completeness or perfection. It's the number of completeness and perfection. And that means the number six. The number six means less than, than perfection. It means evil. It meant, you might have heard of the number, uh, the number of the beast being 666. Six, six. In the 1980s, every heavy metal band kind of used to use it. Does anyone remember the 1980s? No. Heavy metal bands uh, used to use kind of the number of the beast being 666 as a kind of spooky thing. All that number, that 666 six six number you may have heard, it just means not 777. Seven seven. It's just a really evil number. It's a symbol of real evil. The number 4 means the four corners of the earth. 12. 12 reminds us, if you think, what's in the Bible? What's 12 in the Bible? Israel, the tribes of Israel, so the number 12 usually means the people of God and the number 7, perfection as I said. Now the book opens with its author, John telling us that he's in exile on the island of Patmos, just off the coast of what is modern day Turkey, when he has this extraordinary vision it's a revelation he says, of what must soon take place. It's not what's going to happen in 2,000 years time it's what's really going on now and in The the age to come, that's what he means. This is what the times from now on are going to be like. And he's writing to a group of people who, like him, have been persecuted for their faith in Jesus. If they were to look around the world, they'd feel very, very small and insignificant. There are a group of people who wanted them stamped out, and they were having a pretty good red-hot go at getting rid of the Christians. So that's what uh, John says in verse 9. And it's at that point that he gets into his vision. He receives this vision. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I've uh, lived in a house with two trumpeters, I'm here to tell you that the trumpet is not a soft instrument. It's not at its best when it is played softly. It grabs your attention. This is the voice of announcement, of grabbing your attention. He's going to be shown something and he better do what it says. He's going to be shown something and then he better write it down and send it to these seven churches. Remember, seven is the number of perfection, completeness, wholeness and in the book of Revelation. And so seven, the seven churches, they are really seven seven cities in what they used to call Asia Minor. We now call Turkey. They're real cities, and they were real churches. But the number seven means that it's really a message addressed to the whole church, including the church in Darling Point, which isn't mentioned here. Now, who was it who spoke to him in this megaphone voice? He turns around, and what does he see? Well, it's an amazing scene. It's like being right up close on New Year's Eve. It is just deafening and blinding all at one time. There's seven golden lampstands. They're they're kind of in a circle, in the middle of that setting of these lampstands is a person who looks like a human being, like a glorious human being, like a human being, but like no human being you have ever seen. He's got extraordinary clothes on. This robe with a golden sash. His hair is white like wool and snow, but it's not white with the whiteness of haggard old age like my hair on the side. Only on the side at the moment for now. It's white with a sort of eternal timelessness. Isn't it? It's bright white like wool and snow. And his eyes... They flash like fire. You can't meet his gaze. It is so intense. He stands on bronzed feet, like like the bronze in this building. Can you imagine bronzed feet? What's that an image of? It's an image of security. You can't knock him off his feet. He stands firm and strong. And then he speaks. I don't know if you've been to Niagara Falls. I haven't but I imagine, I understand that the noise when you hear the water going over that waterfall is intense, it is loud. This man's voice sounds like the vast onrush of a mass of water that is deafening and overwhelming. Can you imagine speaking like that? He's holding in his hand seven stars, and his mouth, I mean, this is the most frightening, kind of disturbing image for me. He, out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. It's a sword which divides, isn't it? It's a, he, he, what he says is cutting. It's a, his words judge. Two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. His face, it's more than suntanned. It's glowing with the full radiance of the sun. If you saw this before you, what would be your reaction? What words come into your head when you kind of gaze at this picture? And think about it. It's a picture of sheer mega what a power and authority, isn't it? Whoever this person is, he's royal. He's radiantly alive. There's no other word for it. He's glorious. Artists have tried to depict this. I mean, our stained glass window behind me here is trying to depict it in some way, not quite the same. You can't really capture it by drawing it. What intensity, brightness, noise must have been in this picture. What glory must have been before John. And what's his reaction? Well, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Who can blame him? How would you not feel small and weak and unworthy with the noise of the rushing waters and the bright light and the, 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 what's coming out of his mouth is going to judge you and the blaze and the intense look of this person? You have to feel for poor John. I mean, he's persecuted in the first place. He turns around, he sees a vision and it, it, it seems to just make him want to die. He, he can't even bear to look at it. It's as if he's fallen out of the frying pan and into the fire, as they say. I've never encountered anything quite like this, but I think the thing that I think of when I think of this vision is the one time I went with my friend, uh, my friend Justin uh, back when we were at uni, and we were driving up past Lithgow, and his father was an engineer and had been involved in putting power stations together. And so uh, we drove past this pa- power station, we were going somewhere else, and Justin went, my dad built that power station. Justin's that kind of guy. You can't drive in a straight line without diverting. And so he went off. Uh, I was the passenger, so I had to go there. He said, I want to look at this power station. So we drove in, and they had this one bored guy there who was supposed to show tourists around the power station as if tourists ever come. So he couldn't believe that we turned up to be shown around the power station. But he put hard hats on our heads, and he took us around this power station. A power station essentially is, forgive my lack of engineering expertise, but a power station is essentially an enormous fire. It's huge and it burns coal. And the trucks are lined up down the road full of coal and the coal are gonna just be is just gonna be poured into this furnace. This this vast, vast furnace, which is stories high, and it's just burnt and it's burnt suddenly. It's like this instantaneous combustion so that when you look into the furnace, because they have little little windows and you look in, you just see white light. And it's it's sort of, it wasn't as noisy as this scene here, but you could hear a kind of hum. As the coal is just burnt, it's just, it just dissolves, and this energy is being radiated out of this massive furnace. And I had a little um, little uh, tissue in my pocket, and I picked it up. I, I, I held it up. There's a sort of suction effect, and I let it go. It did not even burn. It just disappeared into the flames. So intense was the heat coming out of this furnace. I think that is to some degree, possibly, what John experienced here, confronted by just sheer power. But what happens next is really amazing, because this majestic and awesome figure does not burn him up, but places his hand on John and says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Do not be afraid. I imagine John would have said, well, it's easy for you to say, I don't have a sword coming out of my mouth. But the mysterious figure has told John some pretty interesting things about who he is. He's revealed his identity. And it's a pretty impressive CV. He says, I am the first and the last, which reminds us of the way that God is called back up in the chapter, the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the A to the Z. You see, this one, this first and last is the brackets around everything. You can't see to a point before him. You can't see to a point beyond him. Wherever you look back or forward, there he is. He simply encompasses everything and he's the living one he says I was dead see and now I am alive forever and ever and you will have guessed by now the identity of this person this is Jesus Christ so full of life though once he was dead so supremely victorious over death is he that he was able even to experience death and now stand alive and this is not alive to die once again, this is living of the eternal kind, a forever and ever kind of living. He stands permanent on feet of burnished bronze. And more than that, he has the keys to death and hades. I don't know if you've ever been given a key when you started a job, for instance, or when you became a certain age, you were given the key to the house. A key gives you what? It gives you access, and it gives you power, doesn't it? It gives you not just just that you can go through a particular door, but we don't give keys to everybody. There would be no point to that. It says, you have authority to go through this particular door. When I became the minister at St. Mark's, they actually had as part of the ceremony, they give you the keys. And I still haven't worked out what they're all for. <laughs> uh, but and I, you know, I forget. Um, when, when I worked, I used to work at St. Andrew's Cathedral in town. It's quite a huge building. And uh, one of our uh, uh, caretakers, we used to come to one of the congregations that I led. Uh, it was an evening congregation like this after, the, after we'd met. Um, she came and said, look, I've got the key to the tower. And it was like this. It was a key like that, right? Uh, we'd never been able to go up the tower before, but she had the authority. And so she took us up the tower. And you go up this windy, windy, sta- windy, windy staircase. And you, you reach a level in the cathedral. Uh, and, and there's this kind of uh, uh, walkway, but you realise it's starting to get really unsafe. And there's no. And I, I took a bunch of young people because I was a responsible adult. I'd taken them up and we went out actually onto the roof of the cathedral and climbed over the ladders up one. Can you imagine going? But much, much bigger building going up one side and then down the other, then around. And then we went up the tower. And I can't believe now when I think about what we did that nobody fell off. <laughs> right? But we survived. But she had this key, this amazing key, which gave her access to this door, authority over this door. Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. Hades was the place of the dead. This is what he has, not only because he has risen from the dead, unlocking the doors from the inside, but because he now brings new life to those who follow him, he now promises to open the door of death and Hades for those who follow him. And Jesus says to John, the seven stars and the seven lampstands. These are the seven churches and the angels of the seven churches. So that's fascinating stuff. What does he mean? You remember in that scene, you have the seven lamps floodlit scene. And Jesus, where is he? He's in the middle of the seven lampstands. And what's it's saying is this. Remember, it's the whole church. Jesus is in the middle of the whole church. Jesus, the risen, powerful Jesus, is in the middle of the whole church, on, of his church on earth. He holds them in the power of his hand. What you can see when you look at the followers of Jesus on the earth isn't the full reality I mean what can you see when you look around what do you think of when you think of church what words come to mind what images are in your head we're sometimes full uh, we're sometimes sometimes full that'd be nice we're sometimes small in number in some places in some parts of the world Christians are being hunted to death in the Middle East right now there is a project on to eradicate Christianity from that whole part of the world. Christians are being chased out. They look pretty weak. They can't really respond. They look like they're going to leave. In other parts of the world, closer to our home, it feels like history is passing us by. Did you read the census figures? It says that there are fewer Christians than there used to be, and the number's going down, and fewer people want to say they're a Christian in public. And uh, certainly in the census, whether we believe the census or not, uh, but certainly not so many Christians could master the internet in order to uh, tick the box for the the census. We're broken. In many cases, we've failed. We've been a bit of a failure of a church. We've been divided when we should have been united. We neglect sometimes the poor and the vulnerable in our midst. We've not done the best by women. When you lift the curtain of history and look behind it, Jesus Christ is in the center of it. Jesus, who is speaking in this deafening voice and in all his terrifying majesty. Now this is not grounds for smug self-satisfaction. This is not a message that ha ha, it shows that we win in the end, as John will discover It's actually a fearsome thing to be in the presence of the risen and holy Jesus Christ because he makes pretty strong demands on those who follow him and his churches need to be humble and change. He won't put up with corruption in his churches or hypocrisy where we haven't been loving and where we haven't represented our king with grace and kindness. We should be ashamed and we should change. But there's also this powerful sense of confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in this one. This one who has the power over death and Hades. The first and the last. The living one who once was dead and now has risen. If we stand with him, we will be standing in the awesome presence of the one who has the keys. If we are beset around the disaster, if we are threatened with extinction, if we are irrelevant there's no reason for us to despair think about it Jesus himself was once on the wrong side of history he was tossed aside like a piece of rubbish Pontius Pilate and his cronies had him put to death on trumped up charges because it was convenient one Friday afternoon it got them out of a a mess Jesus was betrayed and Mocked by his countrymen. He was scorned at by his executioners. They sold his clothes. you know. They gambled over his clothes. They put a ridiculous sign on him. They humiliated him. They tortured him. But that's not how it ended. He transformed human history. He turned it all around. He reversed its verdict. The book of Revelation calls on you and me to be faithful witnesses to this Jesus Christ, come what may. Our job is not to get with the times. It is to listen to him. We're not supposed to look fashionable just as well. Speaking for myself. We are to be faithful. We are not to look fashionable. We are to be faithful sometimes being faithful will mean looking fashionable but very often it won't what do i mean if you are a christian like god you will side with the poor and the vulnerable and the insignificant and the lowly and the humble and the outcast those whom history seems to forget those whom progress has apparently forgotten if you are like christ You will stand for purity and faithfulness when the surrounding culture gives license to unbridled desire and thinks that self fulfillment and happiness are the goals of human life. If you are like Christ, you will stand for forgiveness and reconciliation and not for vengeance. If you stand with the risen Christ, you will be a peacemaker, not a warmonger in your life. If you are a Christian, Your task is to look like Christ first and foremost, knowing that he is the Lord of history and that to follow him is to follow the one who is the first and the last, the brackets around it all. He's the one who we will meet at the end of history's many years. He stands at the end. History is pointing towards him. If anyone is on the right side of history, it's the man who walked free from his grave. The living one. And if you don't yet know him, maybe the cracks in the theory of progress that I talked about earlier will send you for another look at this one, the one who rose from the dead and who now holds the key to all things. Amen.